evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we're going to talk about world building. But before we do that, we're going to do a little announcement. Um, next weekend, um, which would be, what's the date? Because this will go up much later than probably this event will be. Um, the 6th. The 6th, the 6th of the, March in the US and in Europe and the 7th in New Zealand and Australia. Okay, March of 2021 we're going to do a ride-in on Just Right and we will also be doing during that day um, an, an extended podcast throughout the day um, probably in shorts where we will like not like continuously six or seven hours, but like an hour here, an hour there, and you know, just kind of throughout the day. Right. Is that mm-hmm. good? Yep. Let's say like a big giant one. Um, where we're going to do mini plots for all of the, try to do plots, mini plots for all the prompts on the prompt calendar that's on um, writing and junk. So while we're doing the write in, we're also going to do some like, a plot in so to speak um so that will happen on march 6th for most of us and march 7th for those of you who are living on the other side of the planet yep and that kind of hyped maybe the idea is to kind of if you get inspired by something that we say that maybe people will pick up their pen and go join the write-in um we're looking at we're right now we're talking about starting at 11 central time which would be i think 6 p.m utc i think and we'll put up a schedule and like list all the times and stuff. Probably we'll probably just do like a writing a junk article, so you guys will see that. We'll we'll post it on both servers and probably Twitter and you know etc. Um, and see how that goes. But we're gonna do that. And um, Jilly has our question that spawned this podcast. So the question um, was from Twy Jane. It was from a while ago, but you know sometimes it takes a while to get around to questions. Uh, from big pieces to the tiny details that give stories life, how do you know what's missing? Is there a process or some insight you'd share to help someone struggling to develop and improve the ability to be creative with world building and such? I always feel like I'm missing a lot of stuff that would make my stories flourish. I think this is part of why I'm having a hard time finishing stories, even ones I've done a solid outline on. Sometimes the smallest details will kind of resonate through your world and it helps you create this foundation of reality. One of the most interesting changes that I saw in the Hobbit movies um, versus the book was um, the addition of, how do you say her name? Terrell? Tariel? Tariel. Tariel. Um, She isn't in the books, but it makes sense that she's there because it's, it feels like that we don't get enough of what happens in the Greenwood. Um, we don't see enough of the people who live there. So it makes sense that she's there. You know, of, of course there would be a captain of the guard. Of course we need to cast that part in the movie. Is she going to talk? Why is it she talking? She's the fucking captain of the guard, right? So it makes sense that she would be there in the movies and she should have been there in the books, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a piece of world building that Peter, um, I forgot his name. Jackson. Jackson. Peter Jackson did. That's really interesting because it gives a broader picture of, yeah, of the, um, of the Greenwood and of what's happening there because her presence expands the storyline and it, it provides some context for the world that the Jawaro and Bilbo have been kind of thrust into because they were taken hostage. And sometimes 
that kind of world building can be like, it can kind of spin you off into a tangent if you're not careful. And I think there were times during the course of the movies where Peter Jackson came close to doing that. And it might have happened. It ended up on the editing floor. <laughs> it probably did. Cause he had, cause I don't think you get that close to a tangent without there being some stuff that got cut. Right. Right. So there are, there are elements that you can put in your original work and in your fan work um, that speak to world development and character development and your GMC goals, motivation and conflict um, to expand what your reader sees in the background. One of the most frustrating parts of Harry Potter is just how bloody uncurious Harry Potter is. Yes. But I mean, there if, is that something... book, if, if those books had been written from Hermione's point of view, we'd know everything. <laughs> Maybe not. But I, I will say this. One of the things about Harry Potter, and one of the reasons why it works, is that Harry interacts with the world in the in the books on screen. He's doing magic. He's at a magic school. It's not a story about a boy back in, in Surrey talking to his muggle friends about a magic school. Um, that would be a very different kind of story. So seeing seeing the interaction with magic, and I think that's one of the things that people forget to do, is when they put elements of world building in, is often they'll talk to it and have a character think about it, but they don't actually have their characters interact with it. And it doesn't really bring it to life. And You don't have to do that with every element, but just instead of explaining, like, telling the audience about the world having the characters interact with the world is much more impactful having characters use magic is more impactful than having a character talk about using magic so um, and i think that's one of the things people forget to do with their world building is have their characters in whatever fashion um interact with the things that they've developed and the things that they've created and that, that will re make it resonate and bring it to life um, in people's minds. And it also will help it stick in their minds and remember much more than just telling them. So Styles doing a ritual at the Nematon to, you know, bring it back to life um, and it, it growing and being big, it's going to be remembered more than, you know, Derek hearing a year later, oh yeah, Styles did a ritual at the Nematon and it brought it back to life and it was all healed and everything and now it's cool. That's totally different thing. Um, one is exploring your world building and what kind of what's your perception of magic is, and the and the other is just filling Derek in on what's going on. And the only reason you would just fill Derek in on what's going on is that that element wasn't important. And if it wasn't important, then why do you do it? Well, I mean, unless the story was about what's going on in the here and now, and that you have, you know, you don't want to, but you may not want to backtrack five years or whatever. But the point is, is that it's it's if you, at some point, if you want your magical world building to have resonance, you're going to need to show it on screen, not just talk about it. So when it comes to, I mean, there's all kinds of different types of world building. Usually when we talk about world building, a lot of times we're talking about um, fantastical stuff like magic schools or soulmate universes or, um, I mean, but could you imagine if you wrote a soulmate story and like nobody really on screen finds their soulmate or if you have a complex system of governance for soulmate, but you, you all you do is talk about it. Um, like, what's the point of bringing it up? And that's one of those things where you kind of flatten your own world building to bring up these complicated topics that you never explore. 
it makes your world building actually seem, I think, more two-dimensional. Whereas if you never brought it up, then you've just got the, you, you're just exploring the dimension of these two people connecting. Right. It is kind of boring. So, um, or it can become a red herring. <laughs> like you introduce a character in the middle of your story that can time travel at will and then nothing. And then, and then they say that it, they, but they, oh, but they never do that. That would be wrong. And then, and then that's it. And you're like, what was the point of that? And they said, they're going, they're going to break that rule any minute now, any minute now they're going to break their own rule. Any minute they're going to have a reason. Nope. Turns out no. So why did it even come up? Why was it even a thing? Um, Sometimes you can't talk people out of making those decisions. They just really, really want random, random person who can time travel. Um, Background stuff can be fascinating, but it needs to serve a purpose and just Baiting your readers isn't actually a purpose. Um, also, world building that isn't purposeful to the narrative is going to affect your story negatively. There's going to be a very small percentage of people that find that stuff so fascinating that they're able to overlook what it did, what, the, the damage it did to your narrative. And it is, don't, don't kid yourself, it is damaging from an objective craft perspective. Throwing a bunch of world details in that are completely irrelevant to your story and that you don't do anything with is damaging. And frustrating. And also it makes your reader... Now, in fandom, it's probably... Sometimes it's not a big deal if you lose a reader. If you lose 10 readers, if you lose 20. Because you're not getting paid for it. But in if you're writing professionally and you do something, I don't know, like kill the hero of your story at the end of your romance novel, you can expect your readers to be deeply unhappy with you and question how your editor even allowed that to happen. I'm still questioning that 10 years, 20 years, 30 years later. Oh my God. 30 years later, I'm still questioning that because I read that and I was like, I, 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 well, killing Sherlock Holmes, he wasn't a romance. It, It wasn't the middle of a romance novel where you expect a happy ending. Yes, he people complained because of the death of Sherlock Holmes. Um and he did bring him back, but it wasn't unexpected. No. When you write for a genre, you have a your audience has an expectation of what they're going to get. If you put a horror on it, they expect horror. If you put romance on it, they expect a happily ever after. If you don't want to write a happily ever after, you need to put romantic fiction on it and like hashtag it Nicholas Sparks. Yeah, you can't call it a romance if you're going to kill your uh, your main character. That's that's not act. That's that is a completely contrary to the genre. So, um, I mean, it's actually ridiculous. I don't think I've ever seen a romance publisher that didn't, except for shorts, where they want hopeful but maybe not happily ever after. They'll say that. Anything that's novel length in romance, I've never seen a submission guideline that didn't say they expected happily ever after. It's like, and they shouldn't have to say it because that's the genre. And yet they do, probably because they keep getting submissions with people dying right, left, and center. Some so zombie. Sparks, people think they're writing. Um, but they don't even Nicholas, know what they're writing. Nicholas Sparks is not a romance writer. <laughs> no, he's not. But a lot of people think he is. His genre is romantic fiction, right? Which isn't the or, same thing at all. Yeah. Um, suspense writers—they can kill their hero at the end. Suspense is 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 is, is no guarantee of a happy ending. Neither is a mystery or um, an urban fantasy or 
I mean, or, or science fiction. But when you put romance on the on the on the deck, that your reader has expectations. The same thing for science fiction; they have expectations. They expect to see the fantastical in a science fiction. They expect to see science fiction. <laughs> so they're they're you know you have expectations you have to meet for your reader um, when you're writing professionally. And you can't bait and switch your reader repeatedly when you write professionally and expect to have a career. You don't need necessarily spaceships, although spaceships are kind of a hallmark. Outer space is kind of a, like the first thing you think of with sci-fi, but um, anything that is pushing the boundaries of science into the fantastical is would be considered science fiction. Like, for instance, the Minority Report is considered science fiction. Yeah. I love spaceships, too. I, I, I love me a good spaceship. I especially like a story where there's a surprise spaceship. It's like, there's a cloaked spaceship in their backyard. I think that's <laughs> awesome. Can I ride in it? <laughs> Who's in that spaceship? Nobody's in that spaceship. Who gets to have this spaceship? I mean, Frankenstein is science fiction. Most comic book stories are science fiction. Aliens from outer space? That's right, Drift. If you don't want to hand wave, but and if you want to hand wave but don't like the word magic, then sci-fi is for you. Although I swear there are some procedurals. The, the speed at which they get DNA results, that's pretty sci-fi-ish to me, but okay. We won't go there. Um, so I think the most important element for me, the most important element of making your world resonate is... Well, for starters, you need to understand your world, but don't convey more to your reader than you need to, for starters, because info dumps that don't serve your narrative, they just kind of, aside from wrecking the pace, they actually dilute the, the information, because it makes the reader, if there is an interesting detail that you don't explore, it makes the reader wonder, well, this would be much more, that's the last thing you want. Your characters are off over here interacting with this, and your readers are sitting there going, but it'd be so much interest, more interesting if he was off interacting with this. Um, that's, you, you just don't want to set yourself up for your readers being bored, bored with your plot. <laughs> Um, and that can happen because you can throw all these ideas out there in your world building that you've given an info dump on and your readers, you might actually get your readers fascinated with your info dump and they're bored with your plot. I've actually read this. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> meanwhile, your readers stop reading your book and they're going over and they're over on AO3 writing um, fan fiction to that one element that you didn't explore. Right. And I've actually, the funny thing is, I've seen people kind of do that. They'll actually give attribution. Oh, there's this idea mentioned in so-and-so's story um, that I thought was really interesting. And then they're exploring it. And I'll go back and read the story and go, it's like one line. Huh. Okay. Sometimes it's all it takes. It's all it takes. I mean, but it's like, it's like the unexplored idea in somebody else's story. So, um, which is fine. Sometimes people do get expi you know, inspired by your, your throwaway line, you know? I mean, Kira did a good job of exploring her. Um, Avery, but somebody could actually, you know, get really inspired about exploring, you know, the penguin colony on Atlantis from the penguins POV. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God the waste reclaimers have been turned back on. Um, it was awful. God, those terrible, those, thank God those awful big pink blobs came back and made the city work again. <laughs> um, so you never know what people are going to take away from your story. What you don't want them to take away is just how much how boring your actual plot is compared to the world building you didn't do anything with. So over over dumping information is 
can actually make your world seem flatter. Um, but the other thing is what you do expose the reader to, instead of telling people about the world, have the characters interact with it. As much as you can, you want to give your show your world building through interaction as opposed to, this is the show versus tell thing. And that will bring the, your world building to life in ways that just an info dump or even just an explanation won't. And yes, sometimes you do have to explain stuff. You just have to. That's You can't literally show everything. That actually would be very tedious to show every detail that you need to explain in a story. It's one of those pithy things we say that we actually don't mean. We've talked about pithy things we don't actually mean in other podcasts. And um, when we say you should always show, don't tell, we go, well, we, maybe we mean 80% you should show, don't tell. There's about 20% you should really tell because it's really boring. And it's going to stretch your narrative out and ruin your pace if you show these minor details that aren't important when you could just summarize them in one paragraph. Sometimes you put a little detail in your story that you don't, that, your reader can kind of, you know, play within their brain a little bit. And one of the little details in Finding Atlantis is the fact that Avery has gills. Well, penguins don't have gills. But the penguins on Atlantis do. Because um, Theseus spent 10,000 years underwater. And those little penguins stayed with him. And they had been evolving on that planet by themselves without any other kind of you know species interaction from other types of penguins um for that whole time that they were there which was millions of years and then they were on the on the bottom of the ocean so they had to adjust and evolve to to survive and there is the implication that he helped them do that but it's never explicitly said um it's just one of those things that you know sebastian notices that uh, avery has gills and that he's able to breathe underwater and out of water. And what's also probably not evident, but is there, is that all the penguins have the ATA gene. <laughs> well, if they're interacting with the city's technology, they'd have to. I mean, I put that out there for you when Avery goes to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Because neither did. one of them knew to call his potty, but he did. Yeah, that's sort of there kind of implicit yeah and also avery sometimes encourages sebastian to do things that he knows he shouldn't because avery has an intrinsic trust of the city and so avery's fearlessness on that subject kind of, kind of encourages sebastian to walk down that hallway when he knows he shouldn't and that's how they find the, the nanite lab um because avery trusts theseus so that, that's all there in the background. Um, and those kinds of little details, you know in your brain that when you're working through your narrative, can kind of bleed into it a little bit without ha having it just shoved in your reader's face. And so that when your reader comes back to read it a second or a third or fourth time, that th they might pick up those nuances. And all of those, those of you who are listening, the next time you read Sentinels of Atlantis, you'll be looking for those things. <laughs> <laughs> and you will see them. Like, for instance, when Theseus is kind of sparkling in the air um, in Sebastian's room, and Sebastian is surprised that, that Avery is sleeping through it. Well, Avery sleeping through it is because he doesn't find Theseus alarming. He's had Theseus in his life his whole life. So, anyways. Theseus is his bro. Right? <laughs> That's my bro. That's my city. That's my city daddy. <laughs> but so that's just the way you know 
those little details, those, those little bitty details can kind of bleed into your narrative. Um, when you know, when you've done the work to build, um, to, to world build and you know what you're working with and you know how other, things work. And that's the other thing that makes the world seem real. I think is if you have this technology or if you have whatever, if you have this magic what are the obvious implications of that in the world? A lot of times you'll see in a story where there is like a magic or whatever. Um, Harry Potter actually does a really good job of these people rely tremendously on magic. And yet I do think there's some obvious things that you'd think magic would do that they don't like, why are people wearing eyeglasses, but whatever. Um, but this is, I mean, I mean, in canon, fan fiction writers fix the fuck out of that. But in canon, like, why were there people who had glasses? It just isn't, you know, but okay. But if, in, imagine if they had all this magic that could do stuff and then the magic didn't actually do anything for them. It wouldn't resonate as very real. So, like, or imagine if they're on Atlantis and the ATA gene didn't do things like open doors or it didn't activate technology. Like, what is the purpose of it then? They have this technology gene that just, what, turns on the lights when you enter a room? We have motion sensors for that. You know, it would start to resonate as a little bit flat. But, and then you can even, that you know, extrapolate further. Like, if you're an ancient and, you know, what else could they have done with their, you know, to integrate this gene into their technology and what might it have done for them? And figure out how to ripple that in. Um, like automatic, you know, potties for the penguin. You know, you that the way that the technology ripples and the obvious implications of that, like the transporters and all these things activated with their mind and all the things you can do on the city um, that make it seem more re the people who wrote the show. Consider that technology activation gene of magic. You know, if people have magic in their lives, it would have just been like, what is the point of all this magic when it does nothing for you? If that's all it's for, what's the point? So you got to consider like when you're putting in, if you want it to resonate, it's like you've, you've built this out with the, you um, in the soulmate thing, somebody, the obvious implication, you don't see that in fan fiction stories. So there's part of your brain that's going, this isn't very realistic, no matter how much you're enjoying the story. It's also, you're kind of resonating. It's not very realistic. So the more you want your, that kind of trope, realistically in the door you'd have a character who didn't want to be touched and then the whole peeing on themselves was something I, I didn't need to know I, I i'm actually um i don't know if i i i still don't get what you mean sweetheart <laughs> i feel like we're about to get a detail that we didn't need to know either um not <laughs> 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 right um so there are there are a lot of details in your world. You have to figure out how those ripple logically. You make that realistic. The what that impact of that will seem, and the more immersive it is for the reader, uh, the the more entrenched they are, and the more that by the time they get to the end, they're going, "Oh my God, I feel like that I was just living in that world for the last two hours," which is, I think, what the question asker is. Um, was saying is how do I make the world resonate as, as real and immersive? What I want to say is that it actually takes work. Who? That is also information that I did not need. I have never heard that. 
and I'm upset that it, I I am upset to have heard it. Drift downstream says, "Don't show the world building; show the consequences of the world building." Um, yeah, mm -hmm. but also give your world building purpose. Don't put some intricate, weird ass thing in your world if it literally does nothing but amuse you. It's like, why bother? We don't mean, and we don't mean like a little teeny tiny one off mention, you know, about, you know, the first lady was grabby. Um, <laughs> that actually had purpose. He was running away. <laughs> yes, he was running away. But some people could go, oh, but you didn't explore what the whole dynamic was with the president and the first lady. And, you know, it, it was plenty of, it's actually plenty of information. He wanted to leave because she was grabby. Um, but, that could also be just something that it's explored plenty. Um, and and the, the, the nature of it was amusing. It doesn't need to be, some people will be like, oh, you need to explore that follow up, the sexual harassment thing. No, it's, it's explored plenty. It's motivation for him to leave. That's that. So like little things like that don't necessarily be delved into, but if you put something big, like a character that can time travel in your story and you go nowhere with it, you do nothing with it. They just say, oh, I have superpowers. I can time travel anywhere and anytime I want, but I never use it. Well, pardon me while I get you committed to have you checked over because it seems like you're not well. <laughs> um, you know, so you have to be sure that you've got um, just a random thing that you find entertaining, entertaining in the story. It, if you're going to just put something random that you find entertaining, it really needs to be benign. It really needs to be benign. Like, like almost the difference between scenery and something functional. Tentacle vibrators with magical runes. Mm. I mean, I, 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 I was saying if, it, <laughs> if it's in the shopping trip, you better use it. <laughs> yes, if you buy a vibrator on a shopping trip, it better show up in a story. <laughs> well, I mean, I see, I've read I've read a, a fair number of sex toy shopping trips, you know, and as long as one or two of the things get used, you don't have to use every single thing. But what's disappointing is when there's a sex toy shopping trip and none of it gets used. It's like, it's like I bother. It's Why'd like they, do that? they went on that big old sex toy shopping trip and none of it gets used. They didn't use a single thing. Why did we have to go to that sex toy shop? Because I was really looking forward to that. Well, I wasn't looking forward to the tentacle vibrator, but <laughs> that sounds a little weird. But some people might be really looking forward to that tentacle vibrator. And now you've disappointed your audience. This is the only... <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. Just for this one person, nobody else asked. <laughs> I feel like Harmonic doesn't actually know how to act out badly enough to get in the sin bin. So I'm going <laughs> to grant the sin bin status this one time. Um, when you look at the world building for something like Emergence, what makes it epic is the mythology and the following through with the mythology. And the things that she knows that she didn't tell you explicitly that show up in the narrative. And that kind of knowledge comes through in the narrative if you've done your homework. And if you're not a plotter, you have to do this in the second draft if you're a pantser. You have to make sure that all the elements that you know are there are being demonstrated. That they're showing up. That they're being... That what you've got is relevant. And all the things that you know that should be relevant are in it because otherwise you're going to it's going to fall flat and it will be 
um, kind of one, it, it, it will be one dimensional. And that it won't have that rich fabric behind it that makes your reader go, wow. I remember when she put Emergence up on Rough Trade, readers lost their fucking mind. They were so excited. They, I mean, it was like instant. And because that world grabbed you from the moment that you started reading, that world building is like right there in your face. Like, holy yeah. shit, we've got dragons. And she still gets dragons on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even though I don't go to Facebook, I log in. I'm like, there's like eight tags of dragons. I'm like, okay. Um, the thing about, one of the things about emergence is one of the first, the, the first thing that happens in the story is, as opposed to just, there's dragons running around is I wanted to explore the concept of, I don't think you become a dragon instantly. I think there's a process. So I thought, well, when I was, when I was coming up with the world part of it, um, that, well, what is it like to become a dragon? You know, what does that look like? Um, you know, do, are, what, are, what are the markings that dragons have? Do they have markings when they're, you know, and these are all the questions I ask myself, you know, what are the markings that dragons have when they're not, when, when they're, when they're in, you know, in their human form? Um, and what does that look like? And then I thought, well, what if, you know, where they have their, you know, I'd say they had scales um, in their dragon form and with their human form, but they had some scales that still showed. And what if they got like a pre-scale that started to develop? They're like sort of look kind of fleshy, but started to feel like scales um, that shed the first time that they shifted into a dragon. And I thought, okay, well, so I'm kind of working through the ramifications of this, like, and this was my thought process. I'm like, okay, so if there's pre-scales, how long would it take somebody to go from being like the pre-scales start to form? And then how long would that take? And I made a decision on what the timeline was from the, when you first started to get your pre-scales until you actually shifted into a dragon the first time. I'm like, well, there's going to be some physiological changes. What if you're kind of short on some, you know, dragons have migrated away from their, their natural habitat. So what if they're short on some bio, you know, nutrients that they, that are that are just aren't found in most places because they've moved away from where they were. Uh, so what if they need some sort of you know supplement to get them through this transitional period into becoming a dragon? I'm like, well, there would be a whole system in place, and there would be this and this and this, and there would be, you know, when you thought you were developing prescales, you'd go check in and you'd you'd get support during your, your this transition process. And okay, well, what does that system look like? And I mean, this is how I kind of backtracked on my world building and I sort of built it out. And then I thought, okay, um, now I need to have my characters interact with this, not just explain it, which is why I set the story to kind of start with, we're going to start with, you know, my main character is becoming a dragon. He doesn't feel good because he doesn't think he has any potential dragon genetics because he's the rarest form of dragon and they don't know how to test for that. Blah, 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 blah. And his, and because his pre-scales for his type of dragon are in a different place, no one has seen them forming because they're on his back instead of on his arm. So, you know, so, so the story starts with a lot of interaction with the world building and it kind of very quickly explains a lot of um, the concepts about the governance actually immersively in the way that Tony's getting um, kind of an ice water bath about this whole 
what do you mean I'm a dragon? I'm, I'm not supposed to be a dragon. That's not the way this works. And his whole life gets tilted on its axis through interaction with the world building elements. So as opposed to explaining the world building elements, the reader goes along with it as Tony's learning about it. So it feels more, there are times I tell you, my readers understand my world building, not understand it. They remember it better than I do. Like I'd have to go back and consult my plot notes to remember some of this right, stuff. Right. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. Let me go look at my plot. Um, but, like Helder, do you remember that thing? <laughs> Because she remembers my work better than I do. <laughs> but, but I got fibros. We have an excuse. <laughs> right. So that, but they remember it because they interacted with it, not just because I told it to them. And because they've read it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes you make a decision about your world building. And you're pretty confident about it. You're pretty confident about how you're going to go with it, what you're going to do with it, how it's going to resonate throughout your work. Um especially if, if you're writing a series of stories um, and then you stumble across something in canon that kind of throws you for a loop. I had that experience with my quantum bang and I can't really talk about it in detail right now, but something happened in my canon um, of my quantum bang um, fandom that changed an element of my, it's like a subplot element that I was going to pull this thread for a while and now I can't pull it because if I did, it wouldn't make sense based on canon characterization. Um, it just, it doesn't, it no longer resonates. It no longer makes sense. And so I've had to kind of like um, readjust um, part of my quantum bang to make up for it. Um, and I've done it and I, I don't regret the choices I had to make and like the decision that I made to actually adhere to this part of Canon. Um, I think it'll be an interesting uh, continuation later on, but it is something that I had to do that I had to pull this, this thread out and put something else back in its place. So when you do that, it can be really frustrating, but it did slightly alter my world building a little bit. I can see that. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But I'm and not unhappy she... with it. I'm, I'm not unhappy with it. I was at the beginning. I was kind of furious, actually. So I was like, motherfuckers, why'd you do that? <laughs> now look what I have to go do. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you can make the choice to just go, I'm going to go with my original idea and go forward and just say, hand wave away that it doesn't match up with, with where Canon went. Or you can choose to make a change, you know, if you haven't posted it yet and say, you know, um, you know, I was reading this um, this story that uh, that dealt with how to care how a character came out of a coma. So, like at the end of a at the end of an episode, a character was in a coma, and they dealt with how the character came out of the coma. Um, now, in the show, the way they resolved it is the character didn't come out of the coma for a while, and so there's an end note that they were going to continue the story, but now they're not going to because you know they don't they they can't reconcile canon. Well, to me, it was such a nit. It didn't seem like it was worth trashing their idea because canon didn't go the direction they wanted, especially since it, it wasn't a particularly big plot point in canon. Um, but it's one of those, these things you can always just kind of go, I'm going to go ahead and go my own way because that's what we do in fan fiction is change canon or you can make the adjustment. And um, I don't think your story was hurt at all for making the adjustment. No, I, I think it's okay. But I have to say if I had watched, in game 
before I finished Unleash Your Demons, oh. I would have never finished Unleash Your Demons. Yeah, I can understand that. Sometimes where canon goes can ruin you. It can ruin you. And honestly, I don't know that I, I can write in the MCU anymore. Like on the, on that scale. And it's disappointing because I had some ideas. I mean, I, I, I need more time away. I, I We're still on a break. Because, I mean, for those of you who are new to the podcast, I actually had a stress nosebleed during the final scenes of Endgame. I was so stressed out and so upset that I had a, I had a nosebleed that I investigated all the contents of my purse and my mother's purse. And I ended up using a maxi pad on my nose in the middle of a theater. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, and the thing about Endgame is, I mean, it's hard to write a fix it for Endgame because there's, there's just, it all needs to be fixed. It's not like it's one thing. It's like, what the fuck? But there but, is I mean, one thing that stops me when it comes to fixing Endgame, and that's Morgan Stark. Morgan, yeah. I, yeah, I know. I feel the same way. And the, and the thing about, though, about how you haven't finished Unleash Your Demons is that I know you had mentioned you saw sequel potential in Unleash Your Demons. And if you ever became enamored of the idea of coming back to the MCU, even if you didn't want to, like, pick up and work on endgame fix-its, you could at least revisit your own universe, which is lovely. Um, thank you. Thank you. And, and you gave yourself Talk a new Talk about ship. ripple management. Yeah. And you gave yourself a sh new ship in that story. So, um gave me a new ship in that story. I've tried reading it from other people actually and been kind of like, nope, nope, nope. Um, <laughs> Sorry? Yeah, I was like, oh, well, maybe maybe this ship is, is good. I'm like, go out and read it. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell you, MCU writers, y'all are way too mean to Loki. <laughs> what the fuck? It, that is some what-the-fuck-itis right there. That's just some things I don't need stuck in my brain. God. I mean, the, the Loki Wump is epic. Epic. I had no idea. I had no idea because I don't. Worse. Worse. Yeah, sugar. Worse. Comparatively, Jesus got a flight for the thing. I mean, I had, I, had, I had to back out. I was like, I can't deal with this. I can't deal with it. Wow. I'm, I'm glad. I've never actually read any Frost Iron. Um, and I'm glad I didn't because it might have ruined the pairing for me. I would actually, I had an idea about writing one where when Loki fell, he fell to Earth instead of falling into Thanos' hands. And he basically, I was thinking that he might just kind of like fall in basically Tony Stark's lap. I mean, not like literally in his lap, but you know, like in the vicinity. He could, he could literally fall in his lap. He's a shapeshifter. <laughs> <laughs> well, he might like fall in his backyard, <laughs> wash up on his beach in Malibu. Hey, Pepper, I found this really gorgeous guy on my beach. He doesn't know who he is. So I was thinking I might keep him. No. Yes. Yes. Yes, I'm keeping him. He's got magic, he says. He's in, I he's in the guest room. He can do some things I can't quite explain. I need to study him. You can't study another human being. I can do whatever I want to do. I don't think he's human. <laughs> I mean, see, I had so many... MCU plot ideas written up when Endgame happened. And then I went, That's oh, a whole lot of nope. My God. Oh my God. There were so many things I wanted to work on that was like, oh my God. I even had this kind of like this idea that I was going to take all the characters back and going to take the MCU back and just you, to do my own thing with it. I was going to re explore Natasha um, 
I mean, I was, I had a lot of ideas, and we talked about that, but there's just. I think we'd have to like have like we'd have to like have a plan. We'd have to, we'd have to get cohorts. We'd have to it'd have to be a concerted effort. It would have to be like feeding frenzy level. Yeah, it'd have to be like a group effort because we'd need we'd need to we need to support each other through the pain of. Anyway, um, I'm sort of like you know when I read uh, absence of no all the world all the world is one that has tear in it quite significantly right mm. yeah. He almost threw my plot for a loop. Well, he threw me for a loop, but he wasn't even. He, she, she cut out all the good bits for Tear, um, or didn't write them, whatever, whichever. Um, I'm reading it, and I was like, I got like multiple plot bunnies from reading all the world because of Tear, and I was like, and he was a he was a basically a secondary character, and um, and I was just like, Kira, can I borrow Tear? And she sent me a character bio. I'm like, thanks. 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 <laughs> and the thing is, I said that I spent this time plotting and um I, there's, I think my favorite with Tyr was one where like when Harry is eleven, he's at the bank and Tyr's on his way in the bank and Harry's sitting out there and they stop and they talk and um Tyr gets curious and they they having this conversation and um Tyr figures out who it is, who's who he's talking to, and that this kid is, you know, um under undereducated about the magical world and about his own legacy and Harry um, and Tyr recommends to Harry that he's like, well, I can't, you know, as an employee of the bank, you know, I can't really tell you I'm, I'm prohibited by certain, you know, laws about telling you certain things, but I would recommend that you hire a solicitor. And Harry says, well, can I hire you? And Tyr's like, okay. <laughs> so they're on the steps of the bank. Harry hires Tyr Warhide to be his solicitor to represent him in the magical <laughs> world. <laughs> oh, this is beautiful. We cannot read it. No, just but, <laughs> but, then, but then I was like, but the thing is, that's why I do all these little plots. And I also, the other one I plotted was one where um, Harry is uh, Ragnarok's um, grandson, which Ragnarok finds out when Lily pulls on family magic to... Um, enact the ritual to save Harry when Voldemort comes because he he's pulling up there she's pulling on Ragnar's magic which is the magic of the line of Durin which is the way I applauded it because Harry is Durin the Deathless anyway um so I'm Ragnarok, 110% on board this plan <laughs> so I do all these little plots and they're all inspired by all the world because there's so much of the um the you're welcome world. fandom <laughs> so much of the divergent world building of that but then i was like and y'all then some people treated cure like crap <laughs> i was like oh i hate harry potter <laughs> those fuckers they're the reason we can't have nice things literally well, it would be focused on Harry, little little Harry, and um, Ragnar kind of trying to raise the Wizarding World um, because he realizes it's his grandson that's in that their um, that their neutrality um, isn't going to serve them, and that his daughter uh, was murdered by Voldemort. Yeah, he's dead. He didn't even know he had a daughter because it was a you know a fling with a witch that he'd had, uh, or you know who he thought was a squib before he uh, married his wife and it netted him a daughter he didn't know about. Um, and then a grandson that he's now going to raise. So anyway, 
but the Tyr Warhide one was the one I was the most enchanted with because I just loved the idea of Harry asking if he could hire Tyr Warhide. Just, just innocently hiring a hundred and fifty year old. It's just it's like, can I can I hire you? And he's like, and Tyr's like, he's so enchanted with Harry by that point, and he's just like, okay, because he's allowed to take private clients. He's not allowed to tell Harry anything unless Harry employs him, and he's like, okay, okay, sure. He's like, and so he, Harry hired. He says, uh, he tells him he'll have to give him a retainer in order for him to be able to give him advice. And so Harry's got a galleon on, and it gives him the galleon. And that's his retainer. He's <laughs> like, I'll accept that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sure, kid, give me a galleon. So he does. And next thing you know, he's he's got tears. His uh, tears standing between him and the rest of the Wizarding World. And that's just because I was so enamored with that character. And really, that that's all he needs. <laughs> That's all he needs. Except he's going to get Rizel too, because you know clearly Rizel and Tyr meant for each other. Yeah, that's an OTP. <laughs> Don't even mess with me about that. It's actually such an OTP that I took out a subplot romance for Rizel and Gimli in Small Magic. How dare you! I, how dare you? It how was dare, plotted how, before I wrote before Tyr even existed. That that was plotted. Yeah, that happens sometimes as you've written one thing and then you OTP yourself and you're like, oh, well, I'm, what about the rest of my works that have this in it? Whatever am I going to do? It was was Keely? it Keely? It was Keely. You're right. See, I told you Lady Holder knew my work better than I did. Anyways, I took it out because I, I OTP'd myself. So somewhere amongst all those Diverger that came to Middle Earth is Tear Warhide. <laughs> so... It will not be in the finished version of that because I can't help myself. So I don't know. He, see, the thing is, small magic is he hasn't really met her. I was not trying to ruin yeah, anybody, but you did. I know. I wasn't <laughs> trying to ruin Shepard Dinoza for people. I honestly was. I knew I ruined it for myself because you know the brother vibe is strong, but um, it's intense though. I mean, I, I it also. Rodney Dinozo because it was it would be like get your hands off your brother's soulmate. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Which is why Tony can only ever find Rodney awesome. Now I never had a problem with reading Rodney Tony before, although for me I felt like it needed to be like a you know a stopover relationship on the way to John Rodney, like you know, <laughs> like before actually before I had written. Um, if found, this was way, a long time ago. I had had this idea. I didn't didn't ever really go anywhere with it. Even in my own head, I didn't develop it that much. That during the whole Duranda thing, that Tony was agent afloat, and um, he wasn't down for the way that Rodney was being treated. And he and Rodney were friends, and that they he started dating Rodney, and John got really bent about it. And Tony gave him hell for it. It's like you don't get to tell me or him what to do when you're acting like such a dick. If you want to, if you want, if you want some of that, you better start behaving yourself. But anyway, so, um, but then I wrote, if found, and I was like, no, no, not even as an object lesson, Tony can't sleep with Rodney. <laughs> that would be too weird. Tony, keep your hands off your brother's soulmate. <laughs> On the other hand, in what might have been, John, Rodney, and Matt all sleep with Cameron Mitchell. <laughs> Not together. <laughs> but they, at which different is, points. But none of them stay with Cameron Mitchell. Right. Except for Matt. Yeah. So. Oh, Matt Matt stayed with Mitchell? 
yeah, that's the pattern. How, did I, what how did I forget that? I mean, I and who's to blame? And honestly, who's to blame them? You know? Yeah. Fair. Fair. I it wasn't I, like love or anything. It was just like stress relief. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I think Mitchell's beautiful, but um, he's um, um, kind of a giant pain in the ass. <laughs> you mean as a writer, or as a, or as a character? <laughs> as a character, um, because he's. I just I find him of all the SG characters, I find him actually one of the hardest to deal with. Um, somebody had asked a question once that we haven't really gotten to about. Well, we've talked about it a, a little bit about fleshing out characters. Um, yeah, I I don't know why. And usually my answer to how do I flesh out characters is well, just just add details until you know until they make sense to you. Um, but when it comes to Mitchell, I don't know. I don't know what 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 my what my is the issue with me and Mitchell is, but it just doesn't. It's a big nope. I like him kind of as a background character or somebody that somebody can be banging for a little while, but I just have a hard time focusing on him as a, a central character. You know what I mean? Does that make any sense? It does. I would not write him as a central character. And I know this about myself because I tried. In the sequel <laughs> I was working on for If Found, I tried focusing on him as a central character. And somehow that worked so badly that I wound up with Gibbs and Patrick Shepard banging. So, you know, <laughs> I was like, well, that didn't go according to plan. I kind of want to see his face when he realizes that his old boss is banging his dad. That Gibbs is banging his dad. And we're like, Gibbs, you're banging my dad. Really? Really? Is that what you're? Is that how you're going to do me, Gibbs? And you got to remember, Gibbs and Tony have a really good relationship in it found, so there's no tension there. So I've talked about the plot for that sequel um, on another podcast. So I don't mind giving the rundown on it. What happens is that Tony is kidnapped or Alex is kidnapped, um, which is like the most stressful thing that could possibly happen to Patrick in that universe. I mean, honestly, I can't think of anything worse I could have possibly done to the man than have his son kidnapped. But it's, they think it's about, everybody thinks it's about um, him being Patrick's son. Um, but Patrick suspects, suspects that that's not it. And it isn't it. It's actually about the SGC. If somebody's getting, Tony's done such a, Alex has done such a good job of screening um, out people from the Stargate program who are uh, being put in by the trust or by the NID um, that somebody needs to get a new plant in because he's been able to find all their plants and they they stage this kidnapping just to get him out of the way so they can get some people in, get somebody else to do the background checks. So Patrick gets frustrated with their inability to find Tony and he goes to the president who's his buddy and says he wants Gibbs read in on the program and he wants Gibbs leading the investigation into finding Tony. And he's sick and tired of the cops and the FBI handling it. He wants Gibbs to do it. And Gibbs figures out what's going on. Well, in the meantime, you've got both of them stressed and upset and, um, you know, shit happens. Up, and shit happens. You know, there's a little stress relief one night, you know, and I was like, you hear me trying to get Tony together with Cameron Mitchell. And look what happened. <laughs> He's not even a redhead. <laughs> Tony be like, so I got kidnapped. And you got laid? <laughs> really? <laughs> really? The two of you? I think we need to talk about priorities here. Patrick's all the best. Gibbs is all smug and shit. <laughs> it was stressful, son. It was just stressful. 
So, but yeah, that's that's pretty funny actually. So my dad is like your Kindle gives. <laughs> <laughs> as a matter of fact, as it turns out, Alex, your dad is my Kindle. <laughs> Just he really does it. it. He really does it for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shut up, Gibbs! I don't want to hear this. Yeah, you brought it up. <laughs> but sometimes you do plan something. You plan a pairing, and then it just falls to, pe- to pieces on you. So, and then you do have to deal with it. Yeah, I've had that happen to me multiple times. It's just, it's a thing that happens, and you just go about it. Because sometimes the chemistry just doesn't resonate for you. Um, I did write Alex and Cam as kind of a pairing. But it's just, it's in a 1,000 word short. It's mentioned that they're a pairing. It's not quite the same thing as developing a relationship for them. Um, and I know that that worked for some people because people asked me about it. But um, it just, at trying to develop them into an actual relationship wasn't, it wasn't working for me. And you don't know till you try sometimes. Yeah. Like, I didn't actually plan to ship um, Patrick with Jack O'Neill. Dude, that is such a good ship. It's not OTP territory, but it's close. I mean, it it was booming. I was like, "What? What? What? Just what? Wow, wow! Look at that!" It, it was really when I got them in the same room together, and Patrick was having his little meltdown. I realized that that's just that was that's banging. So I had to go back to the drawing board a little bit. I really didn't have a pairing for Jack. I wasn't going to go there. Um, I didn't know how I was going to treat his his Sentinel stuff. Um, and then when I replotted and kind of dug into it, I really liked what I did. So it was I kept good. It. it was good. I wasn't mad at it. I, I loved um, that episode's called Catalyst, right? Right. It's uh, yeah, and probably I think it has the hottest sex scene in the whole series. It it definitely is the one I remember. Um, it like it. No, I remember several of them. That one like really jumps out at me. Um, I I mean I remember. Um, John and Rodney's first time together. I remember um, Bates and um, what's his face getting together. Um, I mean, I remember several of sexing, but I mean, I really remember. Yeah, John, John, Jack, and Patrick getting together. It it really sticks out in my brain too. Something like like even writing it was like I knew when I was writing. I was like, yeah, that's that's booming. Because because sometimes you're like, mm, is that working? But with that one, it was like, hell yeah. <laughs> that like, was good it, stuff. It worked. I have no doubts. This one was good. The chat was great. <laughs> that could be that, 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 that could also be said for world building. Sometimes you'll put elements in, and they'll be like, "Yeah, that doesn't really work for me." You take it out, you explore it, you move, you you kind of move it around a little bit, see what it you know, see what it does. Um, sometimes you will go back to your second draft, like when you're second drafting, and you'll see something um, that should be explored. So you explore it and you expand a little bit and you kind of like go back through your draft and pull that thread throughout your whole story. Uh, I, I do that a lot in my second draft. Sometimes it will only equal, I don't know, like 20 or 30 sentences, but it can make, it can make a significant difference doing that threading after the fact. Um, mm-hmm. So you, so you can see the big picture of your, of your story. You see all your scenes laid out and you see where, okay, I could put this here. I could put this here. I'm going to mention it here. It should come up in this scene. And it's just, it really kind of brings your whole package together. Cause sometimes even if you've really planned your story, you've plotted it really well, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to 
have caught all your opportunities to thread your subplot through or to thread a you know thread an element that you want to pull up later or to put in all your foreshadowing it doesn't mean you're going to have caught all of your opportunities you're going to maybe get the first one down you're going to establish your subplot and you're going to get your major points or you're going to <coughs> foreshadow do your foreshadowing the first time just fine um and then the, and then you may miss other opportunities because you're focused on other plot points that that pulling the thread is not your priority when you're writing and so that's why when you're doing your your next draft you can look for those spots of oh where could i do this what else could i do and that's a really one of the really important parts of um that that first big edit that you do is that you aren't really just looking at and actually don't even look too much and they're not focusing too much on grammar and punctuation but you're really looking at um is those plot elements have i established everything that i need to when i need to do it did i follow up in all the places where it's appropriate um do i need a hundred word phone call here to follow up on this thing that i established three chapters ago and that's a really impactful element of of that first edit and then when you go and you do your big grammar edit you do your your breed through before you go and send it off to beta um you can make sure that it, it all gels and stuff now, if you're a pantser, um, you still have this opportunity when you're sitting there and, you know, you're going through. Because if you're pantsing, often in that first edit, what you have to do is go through and make notes about the decisions you've made and um, make sure you don't contradict yourself. Okay, I made this character's eyes blue here. I need to not make them green later. Um, something along those lines. Um, that's that's a very simple example, but you see that people's eye colors will change in stories, and, and not for any kind of reason that's actually logical. Like they have a, eyes that change color, but just because the author forgot their character's um, basic biographical details, so or characters, you know, characters' name will suddenly change. Um, so when you're making those notes to make sure you remain consistent and that kind of thing, that's when you can also go, okay, here's the first time I brought this up, but I could have foreshadowed this two chapters ago and you could go back and put a little, a little thing in right then. And it's a little bit slightly different process for a plotter than it is for a pantser, but it's still done in that, that really, really important first edit. And if you don't do a first edit, please don't tell me. I, there's, just, <laughs> there's just some insight into people's process that I just don't need. You are braiding and weaving these elements together, like with your GMC, your characterization, your external conflicts, your internal motivation. All of this kind of comes together to create something um, bigger than the sum of the parts, you know? Yeah. One of the other elements of world building that I think people sometimes overlook or mistreat um, is subplots and minor characters. Filling out your world, creating a whole world, is more than just the central cast of your um, of your work. There are taxi drivers and doormen and pilots and you know whatever whatever story you're in. You know, there's actually a guy that flies the plane on Criminal Minds. We we've never met him. There's probably two of them up there, actually. Mm -hmm. we, never, we, we never meet them. But they're there. We know they're there. Um, you could do there a, whole are, story. Write a whole story about that guy getting killed. It's rude, yeah. that that's the, that's rude that that's the introduction to him, but you could do it. 
there are there are cops and detectives that are in the precincts of the places the criminal minds crew go. Uh, there are taxi drivers and waitresses and waiters and cooks and uh, people who clean their hotel rooms. These are all elements that sometimes you'll see moving in the background of an episode. Um, but uh, so one of the ways that you make your world look and feel fi- look and feel bigger is by not by like focusing too much time or attention on like a subplot or a minor character but just having your characters acknowledge these other people exist like that Diagon Alley isn't empty there are all kinds of people moving around in it and Harry meets a whole bunch of different people when he goes to the bank so you know there's the uh there's grip hook um there is Madame Malkin Malkin um, there's Malkin? I always said Malkin, the but dude maybe with Malkin. Malkin. Malkin, Malkin. I don't know. Um, there's Ollivander, Ollivander, Olla, the wand Ollivander, guy. Yeah, yeah, Ollivander. Um, he looks like a dork in that picture. It's kind of <laughs> cute, does, actually. Yeah. So you're meeting. There's Tom in the bar. Um, and so filling out the world that you're creating and giving um, just a little bit of information about these people, like in the legacy, when James and Harry go to the bookstore and Harry picks out the little unicorn for his sister and um, the unicorn is poking James and James is saying that he's kind of mean. And Harry points out that, you know, that unicorns prefer virgins. <laughs> that, and you see Stowe flourish behind the, the counter right and he's interacting with james um i like stove flourish a lot i've used him in a lot of different places i've used him in harry potter and the soulmate bond um where he has a business relationship with harry um i used him in what lovers do when harry goes to get the magazine that hermione um did the interview for um he gets it from flourish and blots and mr flourish which is behind of, the counter which of your stories had um there was this, it was a little detail you 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 used a detail about secondary characters t- to kind of spin off another plot point, which was that um, Stowe Flourish shelves his books with his with magic instead of by hand, and so it had left this pixie prank in a trapped in the oh, book. Oh, and they absence got absence of war. Okay, that's an absence of war because the pixie ends up at Hermione's house, right? Yeah. And this is, and then they go and they find there's a family of pixies that are trapped in this book, and you know that they note that they're it, this is something Stove Flourish's brother did, did to him. It's like a prank, and um, but it could have caused a problem for Hermione, and um, so they're going to talk to him about you know shelving his books with magic. It was just it was it was the whole it was about getting it was obviously a vehicle to get them to Hermione's house but yes. it had these interesting details about Stowe Flourish that I thought were really charming and very memorable like his, like his brother is a lush and, that, and that's why he got disinherited yeah yeah <laughs> but it so you so you got this little background story about Stowe and his brother and about how he manages his store um you all but you also get um an introduction to Hermione's father, who's a squib um, and her background. Um, and uh, you also get the information about how pixies are mean. Yeah. She got bit. She got bit by the yeah. pixie. If I remember. Um, no, Harry got bit. Um, because I oh, was going to have it bite her before they got there, but I thought that would be terrible. Um, so I had the little thing bite Harry 
while Zale right. was there to take care of it. She yeah. said she said that it was mean, and then and, then and it, it wouldn't leave her house. <laughs> yeah. <Right. laughs> but so you've gotten this um, little detail. Uh, I also used the pixies. I think I used Pixies in Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond where Hermione was talking about how her mother put up a tree and she opened a window and all these Pixies came in and lit the tree up. And he said, if you put up a tree, Pixies think they're invited. And if you don't open a window, they'll get into your house one way or another. So it's just best to let them in. Um, and that they're a magical leech. Um, and that they get all the magic they need for the year during Christmas time. So let them in. And Star considers them a pest and she hates them. And when Harry was little, he would carry them around his pocket. So this is a Harry who has a different magical education um, who treated the pixie in a way that he wouldn't get bitten. Whereas the Harry in Absence of War, was it fairies? Was it was it fairies? Um, I think it was think fairies. You're right. Yeah. So my, so my um, bond might have been fairies, yeah. Because I think Hermione thought she had a fairy, but she actually had a pixie. See, when you write a whole bunch of things set in the same universe, it all kind of blends together. Yeah, she um, she she wrote Harry in Absence of War and said that she had a fairy, and that's what they thought. And then he said they that's why they went there immediately because they said that it was a scout that would be attracting the whole colony. And then they got there and they went, "Oh no, it's a pixie," and it wouldn't be just the kid. There'd be a parent somewhere. Where did you where did you get any books? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah now okay. I remember. Now I remember. So, yeah. They all blend together in my head. But yeah, he definitely carried fairies around in his pocket when he was little in Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond, despite how Star feels about it. But in my head, Canon, both fairies and pixies are parasites. They're, they get their magic from other magicals, and um, they're a pest. Uh, and there is a colony of fairies living in Hogwarts. And of course, you know that I don't know where that, that dumbass got that cage of Cornish pixies but um yeah so these are little magical elements that you can put into your world to give it a little more fullness without having to spend a thousand words doing it or ten thousand words right. doing it because um you want to i think you want to interact like in a harry potter type situation you want to interact with the world a little more um <clears throat> you know what i mean I do. You want your, in, you want your in, according to hermione granger Sirius lures a butterfly to his finger and it lights up with magic because butterflies are actually a species of fairy. Well, and, what, what, so, one of the yeah. things you do a lot in your Harry Potter stories is you explore ritual magic, which I really appreciate mm -hmm. because I think ritual magic was something that is um, underdeveloped in Harry Potter canon. And so it kind of really makes it kind of resonate as being more, um, um, more realistic it, it's more immersive that this this is a magical world than just you know they did some charm work you know um i, I like to envision the world is bigger than 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 what we got in um one would hope so because there's so know? much there's so many unanswered unanswered questions <laughs> um harry potter needs in, to be bigger there, there needs to be a magical court there there must be an international magical court there must be. Um, because if the ICW is the magical version of the UN, then what's the magical version of the world court? Right. You know, you, logical, logical thoughts, right? The magical world court. And you could even just call it, which I think you did, just magical yeah. world court. You don't have to go. World magic, yeah. 
you don't have to go to some bizarre name like you know you don't have to go up with the international confederation of wizards not that there's anything problems with the, you know and even wizenigamot is not is not an original name she just took a t out and slapped a z in yeah i mean it may be an unfamiliar term to most or many people it shouldn't be an unfamiliar term to people in britain and probably isn't i'm sure it isn't well so i would hope not, not. but so so you can just extrapolate. So basically what she did is she took um, existing or or historical um, legislative or ruling or governmental bodies and she gave them a, a magical version of the name. I don't remember. I think it's in one of your stories that it's pointed out that Voldemort basically fought the, the first Wizarding War um, with like 50 followers that his success was a lot propaganda was that one of your stories i think so um he never had a, there there's no evidence in, in harry potter canon that he ever had a army right so i mean it, it speaks to a huge level of complacency amongst the british populace which then when you start exploring those ripples well what does that say about the rest of the world or if it doesn't say anything negative about the rest of the world what does it say about their view of britain it was well, but the thing is, it still speaks to complacency of the populace because, in some fashion, whether it was complacency in their laws or complacency in they stagnated in their, um, in their, in their spell development or something that just him or Dumbledore real really, 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 really did a great job of undereducating magical Britain. Yeah, there's something that speaks to complacency there because guerrilla warfare in in an it shouldn't have been as successful as it was. It just, it just. Fear. I mean, he, they were so afraid of his name that even a decade after he was dead, supposedly dead, they were afraid to say his name. And that's just pure damn pop um, um, propaganda. Yeah. And, and that's why in my head, because it, what makes sense to me is Wizarding Britain, undereducated, um, a little bit brainwashed, um, very complacent, kind of lazy. I, so I have this whole headcanon about Britain, which leads me to a headcanon about the rest of the world, that they kind of look at Britain as like backward <sighs> politics. Um, and mind you, I don't get into the whole um, anything to do with the the books, with the, the Fantastic Beasts and where to find them, all that stuff. I just, I don't deal with it. I don't care. I really do not care about the whole I feel like the more she tries to explain her canon, the worse she digs herself into her plot hole. So um, I just am not going to go there. So I have a whole headcanon about the rest of the world, kind of thinking that Britain's a little bit backwards. They're just kind of not advancing and that the, the rest of the magical world, it could, because I usually am needing them to use them as a plot device to come in and straighten. Um, oh, we need to ever took my, we never took fairy out of the Sinbin the last time. You can get out of the sin bin. Um, I need those. I need the rest of the world usually as some sort, at least part of the world, as a plot device to get Wizarding Britain under control. So, um, when it comes to the magical elements that you're creating in your story, it's really important that you interact with them. Um, that you, uh, if you're going to explore diverger magic, that you know we're not going to use the G word. You can if you want, but. We'll just call it diverger magic. Interact with it. Um, if you're going to explore, um, you explored. Kira explores divination in both all the world and absence of war. 
um, and interacts with it in both. So if you're going to explore those concepts, really get in and, and I don't mean explore it in a really tedious, boring, we've gone to magic school kind of way. I mean, interact with it in a way that's meaningful for your plot so that you flesh out your world and make it resonate better. That's why so much, we got so little in the books. The book still resonated, but we got so little explained at the end of the day that sometimes fan fiction resonates more than the books even did. The really, the stuff with the really good world building. So, um, and you want to, you want to get in and you want readers to feel they're really immersed in the world. And it, you can even do that in, it doesn't have to be a fantastical bit of world building. Like it doesn't have to be something that's sci-fi or fantasy. Um, it can also be drawing your world and character elements are important in anything, even if it's a contemporary setting. That's why one, it's important. One of the things I stumbled on in writing Unleash Your Demons is that when Tony landed, there was an, emotional disconnect that I didn't and I thought I had a pacing issue and I didn't his emotional kind of connection to where he was and what was happening didn't start until Obadiah Stain showed up and that was a mistake because he was being confronted with the fact that he was back in time and Jarvis was there and the bots were there in their original form because we have to remember that dummy and you were destroyed and he rebuilt them, but they weren't the same. We never really saw them again in that in that way. Yeah. I mean, you see the and bots so, again, but they were... It's implied that he had to rebuild them, yeah. So, it's like, when he landed, I didn't give him enough room emotionally to process what happened. But I thought I had a pacing issue. So, I sent it to Jillian. I was like, look, would you read this to me? What's wrong with it? And she told me what was wrong with it. <laughs> But it didn't take much to fix it. It was only like a paragraph, maybe, to yeah, well, um, it kind of change the tone of of the scene and to make it um to to kind of bring it emotionally into focus because that original emotional focus didn't happen until he was throwing up because of having to talk to Obadiah Stain originally, and it was just like. When she told me, I was like, oh, well, yeah, of, fuck me, of course. That's exactly what's going on. And sometimes those moments can jar your reader out or even jar you out of your world and break your suspicion of disbelief. Because, of course, Tony should have been really kind of overwrought when he landed in the past and realized he'd actually succeeded in doing what he intended to do. Well, and the first time he heard his son's voice right. after... Who has been dead for years at that point. Um, and the thing is, I, I, I was reading it and I'm reading and I was really enjoying and I was really enjoying the dynamic. And, and the thing is, Tony's ability to make emotional connection had improved because of his relationship with Nebula. And so I'm reading and, and yes, and he gets back in time, he goes straight into problem solving mode. And I'm like, did she skip a scene? And I'm like, I scroll <laughs> back up, I scroll back up and I read a little bit and I go, okay, I keep reading and go down. I'm like, did she skip a scene? I <laughs> scroll back up. <laughs> and then I get to the part where he's, you know, reacted. Up, and I was like, huh. There I we go. Like, I feel like he under, as I told her, I feel like he underreacted at just a, a touch. Because <laughs> um, he, he did go straight into problem solving mode when he got back in the past. And it was a little, it was, it was jolting. It was. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, I mean, I, I, I thought I had a pacing problem. And so I was just like, I was digging in, trying to figure out where in my plot I had made this 
I'd fuck this thing up. And um, I was going through my zero draft and I was doing, and I finally, I just handed it to her. I said, would you please tell me what's wrong with this? And she did. And I fixed it. And it was an easy fix. Sometimes somebody tells you, yeah, so can you tell me what's wrong with this? And you're like, oh, I don't know how you're going to get out of that plot crater. <laughs> <laughs> Which I've never had with Kira, but I have had times when people have sent me something and I'm like reading it going, wow. Baby, you're halfway to China. <laughs> <laughs> that is a sinkhole. I, <laughs> I can tell you what's wrong with it, but I'm not sure you're ready to hear it. Yikes. <laughs> But yeah, as if you just said in the chat room, that emotional integrity, and it's very important to have that emotional, um, your characters to resonate emotionally with their world and with the actions that are taking place around them and their own ideas are and how they're responding to the events that they are creating. Um, and that's a big moment for Tony. He has gone back in time. He He's has about to. He's about to embark on landed the hard in a much journey. younger body that doesn't right right he's about to he's a, about to make war right very quiet war but war nonetheless and uh it, it should be a big impactful emotional moment and he didn't react to it which is the issue and conversely um and we've talked about this on podcast before otherwise I wouldn't bring it up um it's almost the opposite issue when she sent me courting Hermione Granger and said could you read this and I read it and I wrote her and I went, well, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, um, I think you need a little separation between a couple of these events because I feel like I've been run over by a truck and it's a little, <laughs> it's a little much, it's a little much. It was a little like two, there was several things that happened back to back that were really hard hitting and it was a little too much. It was, I, I felt a little like, scrubbed raw in a way that didn't fit the tone of the story and that was the issue the tone of the story is fundamentally romantic and so yeah i felt like i had been i felt like i'd had a silkwood shower and um <laughs> i didn't think that was the intention so i said i think that there needs to be a little space between these big events so that they what happened so well, dramatic. What, what happened was is i wrote the curse chapter where she gets cursed by that guy um and they have to do the ritual marriage and all that stuff to solve the problem and then the immediate next chapter there's no in between there it, it goes from that to them waking up together in their marital home and the home invasion yeah and, and the person who died and it was like because <laughs> that was how i plotted it <laughs> that was how you plotted it and so i said there needs to be some space <laughs> I think there needs to be some we live in a room. buffer here. So there's so a little the, fluffy. There's a little fluffy buffer of domestic curtain fic in between those two chapters now, and you know, you're welcome. <laughs> so it was the exact opposite of. Um, we needed a little bit more emotional impact, as this one needed to tone down the emotional impact, and it is because, and that is to go back to Estefi what she said about the emotional integrity it was about the emotional integrity not just of the scene but the emotional integrity of the story and that those two events being such a big emotional impact back to back um sort of changed the tone of the story it, it, it was exhausting looking back on it and reading it like, oh okay um because I, sometimes you, you you need that outside perspective because i knew something was a little wrong and my first 
my first inclination always when I'm having a problem, when I'm seeing, when I can't see my problem, I assume it's pace because that's usually where I'll, I'll falter is on pace. Um, and so one of the things I always work on in my second or in my third draft is pacing um, to make sure I've, I've built in um, the elements that demonstrate pace. In fact, in my current work in progress, I have a pacing issue because I've not demonstrated how much, how much time they've actually spent on earth. And I didn't realize it until I was, um, until I moved them to Hawaii for the, um, for the chapter with Jeannie and Madison. And, um, when I was looking through it, it looks like they've been on earth like five days and it's been weeks. So <laughs> I need to work on that a little bit. And mostly it'll just be like a couple of sentences here and there to kind of demonstrate that, that you, this much time has passed um, saying, okay, I, we're going to have this meeting next week. And then the next chapter that meeting happens, you know, um, to, to demonstrate how much pay, you know, how much time is actually passed. Yes. And yes, it's for the heart of, um, heart, heart of the lion. Um, and so, yeah, because all in all, they're, they're going to spend about two months on earth. And so the last five chapters ish, will be them in Colorado um, preparing to return to Atlantis and then going to Atlantis and then dealing with whatever happened, you know, dealing with the consequences of Woolsey becoming the expedition leader and all that stuff. And so um, I'll be it's lucky if it comes in at 175K at this point. It's, so. it's an international brouhaha. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> or an intergalactic one at that. Um so when it comes to your world building or whether it's in contemporary, because your world building is not just details of, you have to world build for anything. You don't, you don't just world build for a Sentinel story or for a fantasy story or for a, your, your dragon story. You, you have to do some level of world building um, for pretty much anything you do, because you need to understand how your characters, how they belong in that world, how they interact in that world. Um, and I think the, the most important element is that your characters interact with your world. That's really critical. Um, reading a story where the characters don't um, interact with the world, the world is just sort of almost irrelevant. That's where the world itself is going to fall flat. And maybe in that story, maybe the world isn't important. Um, but you should know that going in. You should know that ahead of time. Yeah, exactly. Um uh, I was going to call you Enjoy. Enjoy to mention that when we talked about Mag 7 being a modern ATF version instead of a Western, um, one of the reasons why I think that that resonated so well with the audience is because in the, it was actually the, the story we got that introduced the Mag 7 ATF AU was actually really short. Um, but the characters interacted really well as ATF agents, you know, and it so resonated with, of course, these guys are ATF agents. Look at them being ATF agents. You know, it, <laughs> it wasn't just saying they were ATF agents. It was look at them being ATF agents. And it's like, Oh, of course they are. It just seemed to fit. I, I don't know why it was just, it was genius. Like ATF was way better fit for these, you know, for, for these, these gunslingers from the wild west who became town protectors atf is just a better fit than the fbi it just is so it was, it was just kind of like a um the backstories were seamless for i agree ellie they were completely seamless compared to in terms of extrapolating from the old west characters and the way they moved through and interacted with i mean and the person who decided the person that mog created it and when she 
gave the details like, oh yeah, anybody who wants to write in this, because it was kind of like, it was like the fandom thing in, in Mag 7 was that people created open AUs and like anybody could play in them. It was really rare that I ever saw anybody create an AU that they shut it down. It was, it was a very generous fandom in terms of its world building. Um, people would create AUs and say, yeah, anybody can play in it. Here's my rules. So she created, you know, gave the backstories for them, including what vehicles they drove. And you, when you read that, you go, oh, yes, of course, that's what he drives. Of course, Vin drives a ratty old Jeep. Um, of course, Ezra drives a Jaguar. Of course, Chris drives um, a newer pickup truck and Buck drives a classic pickup truck. I mean, it just it all made so much sense with their personalities from the Western. And then when you read them interacting in the world, which is the critical part, it really clicked. It was like, this is better than the Western. <laughs> Wait, yes, a, a black pickup truck. Show? And I think, I think, um, I think Buck's, Buck's pickup truck, his classic is, is red, right? I think, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, yes, and Josiah has a rundown suburban. He's constantly fixing. Of course he is. Um, and it's just, you know, there's, there's all these little, it's like, everything that she came up with like of course and then when people write it and they are interact there and this is really critical they're interacting in that world because it's more important that your characters interact with the world than that the reader has detail about the world and some people favor detail over interaction and that's just a form of info dumping i know it, it is a sad moment for people who think that the show was an atf setting show then <laughs> they realize that they're about to watch a western they're like I just bought this and it's a Western. <laughs> but actually the Western was pretty good. So um that's actually the mark of really good storytelling. I mean that you go out and search for it and then it's like what did you do? <laughs> what like, did Mog you do? And the thing is Mog never wrote much in the ATFAU. She just created it and wrote a little story and then said, Oh yeah, and just was sort of like casually like, Oh yeah, sure, anybody who wants to write it in it can. Boom. All of a sudden, there's way more of it than there was of the original. And the thing is about the ATF, um, it's more accessible to write in a contemporary setting than to try to write in a Western. Because, man, there is nothing quite like writing and reading a story set in the Old West and somebody's got a bottle of lube and it's referred to that way. And it's like, um, mm, it seems a little off. It seems a little off. I mean, I, I, th I think a pro tip for that would actually be a jar of slick. Yeah, or just some, it, let's be honest, it's probably going to be realistically more like grease or uh, yeah, a tin, oil. Yeah, a tin. Oil, a tin yeah, of a, grease, a, a yeah. Tin. I mean, use oil. Use oil because grease is gross. Because <laughs> yeah, that oil. implies it's probably actually animal fat, and let's just not. Yeah. <laughs> It probably is animal fat. That's probably as realistic, but let's not go there. Um, but just oil is your good your good substitute when you're talking, doing something that's set in a historical setting. But man, bottle of lube, it's like, um, nope. <laughs> bottle of lube. Um, grease your hair, grease oh, your beard, grease your saddle. I, I don't, I don't. I feel like I just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sin bend you for a little while for that. I, I, a little while? <laughs> Oh, Ed, a tin of lard. Let's just not. Let's just let's just not call it. Oil works great. Oil is oil is inoffensive and realistic, maybe, um, and certainly more realistic than a bottle of lube. So, is anyone else like curious to look up when Vaseline was created? <laughs> yeah, I, my, I know it's a petroleum product. <laughs> I can suspend my disbelief. Eighteen seventy-two. Wow. wow, Ellie, that was right there. 
I feel like she's researched this before. I, I, oh yeah. Okay. Okay. I don't know that they would have had it in the old West, but you know, you, you could go there if you really needed to, but you're probably going to have your readers jumping out of your story to look to see if Vaseline was invented then. But anyway, I mean, you could probably call it petroleum jelly. Yeah, that's probably, that probably is. Yeah. They called it. But, um, the really critical thing about that world building, that ATFAU world building, was how seamlessly the characters moved through it. It didn't need to be explained. And that is, I think, to me, what is really makes world building resonate is that it almost doesn't need explanation. Is because the characters interacting with it is the explanation. Oh, Estefi, I'm horrified. Paraffin? That's like candle wax, right? But did you did did you just see this? How do you say her name? Who? Eliana? Eliana? Who are uh, it looks like Eliana to me. Okay. In 1859, Robert Chess Bro? Robert, a chemist <laughs> who formerly um, clarified kerosene from a, the oil of sperm whales, traveled to the oil fields of Titusville, Pennsylvania, to research what new materials might be created from this new fuel. There he learned of a residue called rod wax. <laughs> rod wax. That had to be periodically removed from oil rig pumps. The oil workers had been using this substance to heal cuts and burns. Robert took samples of the rod wax back to Brooklyn, extracted the usable petroleum jelly, and began manufacturing medicinal product he called Vaseline. Rod wax. I will never not call petroleum jelly anything but rod wax again for the rest of my life. It is not officially rod wax. I feel like I need to put you in the sin bin. Fight me. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. I can't I can't deal with the idea that, that people used to fuck with candle wax. That's really horrible. Wonder jelly. They called it wonder jelly. That's amazing. Wonder jelly. But rod wax is so much fun. I think it might actually still be on the label calling it Wonder Jelly. It's tested 100% pure petroleum jelly. Producing paraffin wax produced in oil. I actually didn't know that. Although I do know there, I've never looked into the production yeah. of paraffin thing to be banned. I mean, with. the only paraffin, I, it, it smells like lavender. It's very soft. It dries. And I'm going to look and see if okay. we have forgotten any element of what was asked. I've lost my notepad. Okay. Okay. So what I think of the part that we probably haven't really addressed is how do they, how do you know it's missing? Um, I'm just going to bookmark that Estefi because you learn something new every day and you never know when I might have someone time travel in the past that wants to have sex. <laughs> you got to know how to get it lubricated. Although I think I'd probably just go for Wonder Jelly at this point, or Rod Wax. Rod Wax. on calling it. Do you have any of that Rod Wax? <laughs> okay, so how do you... You know, you know, that's actually why it was probably called that, right? That They were probably using it to drug oh, off with. Well, if they were using it to heal, they're leaving that detail out. They're using it to heal cuts and burns and stuff. And they'd figured out its consistency. I'm sure that they were definitely using it in the way that our brains assumed. <laughs> so how do you know what's missing? Um, so in the, like one, one way is you stumble and you feel like you've got a problem. That's one way. Um, you know, 
it either could be that it could be there's nothing missing. You've just got some emotional issue or you've got a pace issue or you've got the wrong pairing or the wrong POV. There's a lot of, lot of reasons why you might stumble. But when it comes to stumbling around world building, um, one indicator is that you don't have enough details for your character to interact in your world. If, if you go with the idea that your characters need to interact with your world and you go to start writing your character doing so, and you are stumbling, then you have not fleshed your world building out enough. That would be probably the biggest clue, is that you actually literally can't write it because you haven't figured it out yet. Um, I'm trying to think of how else you would know that you've got something big missing. Um, in um, your read-through, if you start skipping your own narrative, you got a problem. Yeah. If you stop, and if you catch yourself skipping narrative pieces in your work it's because you're boring the shit out of yourself and if you're boring the shit out of yourself with your own words imagine what you're doing to a reader this is also why you should not read your work immediately after finishing it okay like a, a short sure fine whatever but if you're looking at 150 i mean even like 80 90 000 words don't read it the same day you finish give yourself a week give yourself two if you could give yourself a month that's even better because then it's going to be a little fresher for you to read, and if you start, and if you're still skipping narratives, are uh, and long pieces or in, and paragraphs when you're reading, you've got a problem. Either you've got a pacing problem, you've got a world building problem, you are info dumping, um, and you need to figure out where your problem is and fix it. So, um, as Kira's saying, when you are your read through is really really important, and that you be able to be objective about it. Um, conceivably, it's unlikely you're going to have a ton of world building that you have to worry about if you're in a small short story. But even as much as a novella, so 20k or more, even as little as maybe 15k, you might start bringing in world building elements. And that's where your read through is super important. Um, so um, I do think your biggest clue that you've got an issue with your world building that you haven't fleshed out is that the character moving through the story you don't know how to make them do that and it's because you haven't figured out those elements because it, info dumping world building doesn't do you any good your character has to be able to use those world building elements and the thing is people will get this is interesting a thing that i've noticed people get wrapped around the axle about world building elements that have nothing to do with their story at all like they'll spend days working out legal issues that will never come up in their story and, and it's fine that you do that but if your characters are never going to interact with those legal issues um so like let's say you're writing a story where magic is uh, like a teen wolf story where magic is known um where the supernatural is known and there are all these rules for magic okay so maybe you need to figure out some of the the legal implications of magic and what the governance is like on that fair enough Okay, but if there's not going to be an actual legal challenge to the use of magic in your story, at some point, the level at which you do legal world building around magic becomes irrelevant. So then you go sit down and write, and all your world building has been about, let's say, creating a, a, a legal judicial system to handle governance of magic. But none of that's in your story. None of it. There's no legal challenge to the use of magic in your story. And then you go to start to write your character, let's say Styles, is moving through the story and he's using magic. And this story is actually about him 
ascending to be, become the guardian of the Nemeton. But you haven't done any magical reason. You haven't done any world building about Nemetons at all. So you start writing your story and you stumble because the world building you did was about magical legal system, not about Nemetons. You focused on the wrong thing. And so when your character started moving through the story and interacting with your world, you you went, wait a minute, I'm missing a big piece of my world building. Yeah, you are. And and it, it's fine to work on whatever world building elements you want to work on. But the most important world building elements are the world building elements that your character is going to touch. And you want your character to touch those elements. And you need to flesh them out. <laughs> Sorry. <I> just <laughs> I'm having a little schadenfreude moment. Excuse me. <clears throat> I'm surrounded by assholes. Yes, you but, are. <clears throat> even my little dog. <sighs> your, your little dog is definitely an asshole. Oh, see, we we bunnied somebody. You bunnied somebody. I'm I'm always happy to bunny. Um, Ellie bunnied me earlier. I don't, I, I don't even want to talk about it. This heifer, I'll talk about it. I guess this heifer isn't just right. Saying she has problems. So I said, okay. I'll, um, do you want somebody to bounce with? Because I'll bounce with you. And she DMs me. She slides into my DMs like one does. And bunnied me. How dare she? Ellie's a terrible influence, you know. She is. It's awful. Since you're not going to talk about it, but and then, then you started talking about it, but then you didn't talk about it. <laughs> it might end up being a quantum bang. Oh, you can't talk about it. Right. I'm just going to be all huffy over here now. Well, I guess the other question is, did you help Ellie with her problem? Or did you just get inspired? I, I think so. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I tried to. You know, Margaret says, I don't even know what that is. I think you're right. But it involves an inexplicable baby. I love an inexplicable So, And you know... You, you'd think, you'd think that if when it comes to an inexplicable baby, that you eventually have to explain that world building. Turns out you don't. It turns out you don't. So, you know, sometimes there's nothing missing in your world building. You just don't have to. And, and that exact, with a crown of stars, is an example of, it's a world building element. I really, really want to understand wish babies. I really, really want to understand them. But it didn't diminish the story that I didn't. As a matter of fact, it became a funny point because of that whole thing of, I know where babies come from. I'm like, I Abigail. don't. <laughs> Shut up, Abigail. <laughs> he was about to explain. <laughs> he was never going to explain. Abigail was a plot device. And it was really annoying. <laughs> I wanted to know Abigail. Oh, that's right. I did help her. We're going to see. Oh. I, with the crown of stars was awesome yeah it was great but i but abigail did us wrong but you can't go wrong with the hoyden a truly but i mean warnings because this is this is hannibal being hannibal in this story but you know so fair fair warning if that's not your thing this is not one of those au's where he's not but um it does have this brilliant bit of world building there's 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 the world building of babies or wish babies. Babies aren't born. They're wish. They're wished for. Um, they're inexplicable. So um, it's just it's cute and and um, and it it was a really charming element. But it ultimately the author didn't need to explain it. So, but if it, it wouldn't have been as impactful if it had just been mentioned that babies were wished for. 
right? But Will and Hannibal got a baby. So this is another example of your character, how it's more important that your characters interact with your world than it is that you explain your world. Well, Jesus, look at all y'all and your fusions. I'm not mad. Um, somebody so, had a question. Okay, go ahead. I was going to. Um, how do you respectfully borrow cultural elements for world building? Like you want a traditional indigenous culture, but how do you borrow from multiple cultures without being disrespectful? I mean, my hesitance when I do a, I'm always hesitant when I'm doing like an indigenous culture, particularly an earth-based one. So I'll go, let's start with an earth-based one. Um, my hesitance is, um, if I use one that's real, that it feels like getting it wrong is disrespectful. So, and it, sometimes, sometimes these things are not the easiest thing to research. So sometimes it's a little bit better to like make um, up, like if you're using like, because I had to use um, Native Americans in, oh my God, what's the name of that story? Subversive. Um, and so I kind of had to make up a, a different tribe system because things, you know, I, I changed history significantly in that story. So, uh, you know, I, you just got to kind of walk a, a fine line. You're not, um, you don't want to play into stereotypes. Yeah. Don't play into stereotypes. And don't fetishize. You don't want to fetishize cultural, anything that's a cultural or ethnic element. Don't fetishize it. Cause that starts to become, uh, you read that in stories like, Ugh. but when it comes to making up an alien race, um, like on another planet, I think that actually is a lot easier um, because instead of borrowing something directly, you borrow concepts like, you know, they're going to, is there kind of craft or do they have like a craft that they do? What is it? What kind of craft do they do? You know, as opposed to borrowing a specific like basket weaving type that is specific to a specific tribe, Native American tribe in, in, in New Mexico, that might be a little bit feel a little weird to people um yeah like susan said this better that there tends to be trends in culture according to history and geography um and that you can use that framework so it gives a feel of an area but isn't directly borrowed unless this story is actively set in that locale so when it comes to aliens you really are using more of a framework um you decide how advanced you want the culture to be um and then i would try to if you're using elements that are if you're using elements that are often fetishized by people, um, I would really try to mask them and remove it to really hide the element, the part of it that's so like the whole the the whole geisha thing is really fetishized in Japanese culture. So mm -hmm. if you're bringing in an element that's like geisha, I would really uh, try to separate that 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 is culturally like what the geishas actually were. I would really try to to change that and mask it in a way that it didn't actually resemble geisha too much so that it didn't hit that sort of fetish vibe people have about it. I don't know if that makes in sense. In ties that bind, in ties that bind, there are um there are geisha, of course. Um, but they were never they are revered in, in Japanese right. society and they were never um treated historically the way they were in reality. Yeah, what I meant yours is very different because you had a yeah yeah, and that's the point. A different, a different, point. you different progression of history. But like, if you have like SG one going to a planet where they met a culture that had um, a, a something that you wanted in your mind to be like what geishas were in 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 Japan, 
don't have the characters make the association to geishas. Describe them because pe some people are very uneducated about what geishas actually were. So um, describe describe it and don't make the direct connection. I think that's more respectful than um, bringing in this fetishized, what can feel like a fetishized element. I don't have any idea if that made sense. It, it, it made sense to me. But there is a there is a, a line between appreciation and cultural appropriation. Um, and it can be a very thin line. Honestly, especially if you're white. Yeah. So treating a topic with respect and uh, being authentic with it is the best that you can do. So learning everything you can you know about it. We talked about this before. You know, yes, you write what you know, but the first thing you need to do is learn everything you can. So if you're going to explore, like, um, if you're going to have a society on an alien planet that has um, shamanism or um, spirit animals or spirit walking or uh, large group marriages or, I mean, I'm just talking off the top of my head, just, you know, whatever kind of society you, that you're building on is that you need to invest yourself in learning about the culture and learning the parts that really will help you in your creative process. And then try to remove that as much as you can, because you don't want to build your story on the back of somebody else's culture. Right. And you also, when you're doing that, when you're doing research into other cultures or you're doing research into um, different kinds of, well, uh, different kinds of cultural practices or other, it could even be into researches into religion or um, that different kinds of ritual practices or voodoo or just whatever, that kind of thing. Um, one of the things you want to do is also challenge your own biases because um, that can, that's one of the ways you can kind of, you know, unfortunate things can creep in is that you haven't looked at what your your own your own personal biases are even at i'm not talking about racism or anything like that i'm talking about just um your own view of of the world can um like using the word exotic to describe that is so entrenched in basically white people culture that it, people don't stop to think about how offensive it is so um if you don't challenge your own your own biases and your own perceptions of the world, you can continue to do things and put things into your fiction that can be a little offensive culturally. You know, when you take when I took when I took anthropology classes in college, and I took several, they talk about like one of the things they talk about with the anthropologist is trying to learn the emic view versus the edict view, which is looking at things from from sort of like an objective versus a subjective perspective. And um I think learning to, if you're doing cultural research and you're trying to figure, like develop a culture for your own, an original culture, it's really important to learn to look at things with, with more of an, an objective view. And that can be difficult. And like one of the art, one of the, one of the examples um, that they use for this is they had an article that was written that they wanted you to read about this one culture and the culture seemed bar like barbaric would be the term a lot of people used. I laughed because I recognized what I was reading as soon as I started reading it because it was absurd. To me, it was absurd, but every, most of my class took this really seriously and they thought we were reading this article about, um, 
And what it was, was an outsider's like objective who had no technology framework for, for Americans, basically an average American household. So if you didn't have any technology framework for what Americans do and how they function, it was a description of life in a, in a nuclear American household. And, um, it's called the Tribal Rituals of the Nasarima, which is America spelled backward, American spelled backwards. And you can probably, I don't know if you can find it online. Um, I think I recognize, I think I realized what I was reading. I'd love reading. to read it. I think I recognized what I was reading like two or three practice, two or three paragraphs in, and I started giggling in class. Um, and my teacher actually had me like leave the room because she realized I had figured out what was going on. There's this whole thing about, you know, that they bake their head in a small oven every day, which is one of those bonnet hair dryers. Um, and it talked about the bizarre, <laughs> the bizarre um, hygiene rituals that happened in the, the, the room, the household centered around um, the hy the hygiene room, I think is what it was, which was the bathroom. <laughs> it's, just, it's just so weird. Um, and, and the point of it was to try to get you to think, to challenge your own perceptions about how you looked at other cultures when you were reading about them as don't, don't look at it and go, Oh, that's weird. Or, Oh, you know, it's to look at it and, and uh, evaluate it objectively, which we're not ever truly capable. I think, I don't think of ever being truly objective. Um, um, Susan found it body ritual among the Nasarima. Yeah, this is it. I shall read it's, that later. Thank you very much. Um, so I've spoiled it for you because I've told you who it's about, but um yeah, when you're doing your world building, just just I would say keep that's one perspective to keep in mind is to challenge your own perceptions and your own cultural bias so that you don't I think that's one way you can remove a layer of offense is you don't describe cultures um as being exotic or weird unless you've got a character who thinks that way because it could be culturally accurate you know i mean sorry sorry uh, characteristically accurate that your character would be say that like jack would might go oh that's weird daniel might elbow him and go it's not weird just because it's not the way you do things i mean it's not, it's weird and the reason why that matters is because if you've adopted a practice from um let's say a culture in in peru all right a, a tribe that you've researched that lives in peru and you've adopted some practice from that and you've put it in and I think you're talking about how weird and exotic this is. And somebody who's reading this, who's from Peru and they're going, Ooh, what is the matter with you? So yeah. Anyway, that's, that's kind of, I don't think I have any more advice on that particular subject other than to kind of try to challenge your own perceptions, think objectively about things and, and be kind. Yeah. Be respectful and kind as much as you can. Also, it's easier to work with a framework than it is to work with literal literal pieces of somebody else's somebody else's culture. So, if you look at like the common elements that are in um, indigenous peoples from the 1800s, you know, did they have a you know what was did they have a caste system? What were the what were the the ranks in their caste system? Um, you know, was it a warrior culture? Was it an agricultural culture? You know, you can figure out what the common elements are amongst a like type of culture and then fill in your culture to be, well, you know, my warrior cast is going to look like this and, um, and fill it in with your original elements rather than literally adopting a piece from this tribe and a piece from this tribe and a piece from this tribe is use the framework, um, rather than than the pieces of other cultures uh susan says do the research be objective know your biases and be aware that people from other cultures may read it so so may read it so if you're serious ask 
Yeah, it, it doesn't hurt to reach out to somebody and say, hey, um, do you know anything about this? Do you know anybody who does? You know? And a lot of times, if you, like, find an article online that you want to read, but it's behind a paywall, if you email the person who wrote it, nine times out of ten, they'll send it to you. Or you could ask and just write, say, has anybody got a subscription to the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Atlantic or whatever this article is behind? Because there's probably somebody on the server who does, who will help you. Most of the time, they, yeah, they don't get paid for those paywalls. And um, they've sold the article. They got paid once if they got paid at all. And they don't care. They will send you their shit in a PDF. Because uh, I have actually never ex experienced it where I didn't get a document. Because, hey, I'm, I'm researching this. I, I found your article. It looked really great. It looked really interesting. Um, and I'd be like, can I have a copy? And they'd be like, yes, here, have a copy. And also, I wrote this two years later, so you should read this too. Because <laughs> they want to share their stuff with you. <laughs> Drift suggests that sometimes you use a synonym for the words and see if it changes the way you think about it. That's a good idea, um, is change the language. See if it if it alters your perception. But you got to remember when it comes to if you're building like an alien, a, a culture on an alien world, um, you you got to factor in the more so than just the culture you're building is what are the impacts. So like if you want an indigenous culture that is agriculture, let's say an agricultural culture, like let's say sort of agriculture in the way Janai pretend, pretended to be. Um, but you want there to be like a warrior caste or something like that. You've got to factor in what the Janai system actually on the face of it didn't make a lot of sense because it should have been suspicious because when you, their sort of Amish farmer thing they had going on didn't make sense in light of the wraith. Because the wraith, when you create a culture in a system where the wraith are calling people, um, you have to factor in what the, over time, over thousands and thousands of years, what is that stressor going to do to that culture? What is, how is it going to alter it? So you're not going to have a, Picking up a culture wholesale from Earth and putting it in, you know, the Pegasus Galaxy doesn't account for that ten thousand years of of, you know, being treated like cattle stressor. Um, and the Janai basically didn't account for it. Really, they were just these peaceful farmers. It was like really, you had to assume they're hiding something. So. Yeah, and, and Susan says, what bits of alien biology, if they're not human, are going to affect how they interact with their environment? So all of these things are going to have a, a, an impact culturally. So once you've got the basics down of your framework, I want to write an agricultural society with at least a warrior cast. Um, and then I'm going to uh, figure out uh, maybe they've got... Um, some bit of different alien biology. Maybe they have a dick tentacle. You know, since Kira put them in that story. I did not. Oh, wait, I did. You did. I about to vehemently deny that. did. But. Um, so they said they've got dick tentacles, right? So they've got different genitalia. So that's, that's your, that's your nod to them being really different. Okay. So what is, happens? What is that? Tentacles what does that happen? What does that look like? What is that? How does that? How did they get dick tentacles? Why do they have them? What function did the dick tentacles serve? You know, you got to figure all this stuff out. And what impact does that have on them culturally? Are there cultural practices around the dick tentacle? But it's actually not a dick tentacle. It's a genital dick tentacle because the females have four and the males have five. There you go. 
It's in um, Wrath. It's just mentioned. It's it's yeah it, yeah. It's just it's, mentioned. It's Valentine's it's, threesome. It's the teasiest mention ever. It was like, did you just do? Pardon me, genital tentacles? Really, Kira Marie? Really? <laughs> I'm pretty sure I actually paused during my reading in Rough Trade, went over and said to her <laughs> in direct message, "Dick tentacles? Really?" <laughs> I know, right? It, it, I think I think you mean the unfair part is that we don't actually see Bones having this threesome, but threesome I could be with this, I, I could yeah. be wrong. Well, I sh- even if I send Ben, or she isn't getting to show up. <laughs> so, so I mean, when you're figuring out your culture and your your you've got to then it's not just a matter of okay, I figured out what my culture culture looks like. You've also got to figure out does it make sense with the stressors of their environment. You know, whether it's, in you know, white people who want to kill them or, you know, space catfish who want to eat them. These are environmental stressors that that have to be accounted for. Um, and if your if your Stargate culture, your Pegasus Galaxy culture doesn't account for the space catfish, either they've never encountered the space catfish, in which case why, or you've failed in your in the way you set your culture up. So, and the more you, the more you explore the ripples of the space catfish or the dick tentacle or the genital tentacle or whatever, the less it's going to look like the culture you started with. I'm just saying. So you go out and you write the whole, um, you write your Stargate story with this culture that's got these people who have a genital tentacle um, and uh, Rodney can get laid. He can be all into the genital. <laughs> he can be all into the genital tentacle. John can get jealous. <laughs> <laughs> but then it comes down to the fact: is what's he jealous for? Because Rodney got laid. He didn't get laid. There were tentacles, and he doesn't have them. He didn't get to experience them. I mean, there's a whole level of jealousy going higher that needs to be explored. I do think it's multifaceted, and I think that's going to make yeah. it really intense. Yes. And I think I think it's going to come out in layers. It's first be like, I can't believe that you had sex with. And then it's like, I can't believe that I didn't have sex with. <laughs> what exactly do they do with the tentacles? <laughs> Is it better than regular dick sex? <laughs> will, and then will I ever be able to compete with this event? <laughs> It would be better if, like, Rodney had never had sex with a man before that. <laughs> and that was his first experience. <laughs> that would be awesome, actually. <laughs> Rodney would be like, I don't even know. I have no idea if it's better. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> uh, you got you to you gotta have your fun where you can. You really do like the vagina cave. Lord have mercy. That thick <laughs> is, is anybody else's mouth watering. <laughs> I don't know where some people get their ideas, but good God. <laughs> is it my turn to jump on it yet? I mean, come on. Come on. That is the funny. I hurt myself laughing at that pic. I, I, I can't. I can't. Somebody find that for me. Because I keep losing my link to, I, uh, I'm not clicking on that. 
I'm not. I'm not doing it. I'm not clicking on that. Um, some things you just know that you don't want to look at for later. Okay. okay. For later. Okay. Okay. Um, I lose the vagina cave story. I should bookmark it. I don't know why I have it. If it's only on Wraith Bait, I'll cry. Right. <laughs> oh, I think we answered that question, so I'm going to go delete it. Um, but again, in, in, in regards to that question, in terms of in terms of the world building um, uh, question, when you do create those cultural elements, interaction with those elements is more important than explaining those elements. So yes, you can do the whole Daniel Jackson. Um, Daniel Jackson explains the cultural whatever, but it's it's more impactful if you know if John has sex with somebody with genital. <laughs> You know, and it's more entertaining if Rodney has sex with somebody with genital tentacles, right? I mean, somebody you know the the anthropologist. Because see, John might keep it to himself, but Rodney would tell everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he would. <laughs> or if they're a nudist colony, Susan, you mad genius! They go to this planet. It's a it's a. Or what if they only wear shirts? <laughs> <laughs> they're short cocking it everywhere. Start tentacling it. <laughs> because they use their tentacles for more than just sex. <laughs> I Someone hands them a beverage with a dick tentacle. Great. Now I can, all I can picture is that tail and avatar and I'm done. They use that tail for things. They use that tail for sex and they turn around and use that thing to control animals too. I mean, pick one. Pick one. <laughs> Thanks, Cameron. What's wrong with you? Yeah. So, you know, they're visiting the planet and they get offered a beverage with a dick tentacle and they're like, do I have to drink this? We've talked about interacting with other cultures. Drink up. <laughs> Wait, Jace, really? You had never made the connection about Avatar? Oh. Because they stick the little tail thing on the little animals that they're flying, right? And then when they have their, their love scene and they're kissing and stuff, they... They join their tails together. <laughs> they do. And they, they also join that tail to a tree. So it's. <laughs> that tail is multifunctional. And I feel like it's a problem. <laughs> we're very. We're very. Um, we're very. <laughs> specific. Ripples. Ripples, Jace. The ripples are there. You just have to look for them. We're very specific about the functionality of the genitals. You know, um, well, even if the tail joining is just like hand holding, even if you go there, there, it can't just be like hand holding because why are they doing it with the horse? Because they have some kind of connection. They and a lizard, they form some kind of mental it, bond. It creates a mental I bond. I mean, because she's considered married after that, right? She couldn't get married without without doing that whole hand she holding. Was mated. She was Whoop. mated after that. Whoop. So, and they're using that tail for those little flying animals, y'all. We'll call it, we'll it hand-holding if you want, sure. If it makes you feel better, you call it that. You read a fic where people having sex in private was taboo. Well, <laughs> I'm guessing there was a lot of sex in this story. <laughs> well, Riggs, you can either watch the story again or go watch Fern Gully, the original. <laughs> Avatar tail-holding e equals Vulcan finger-touching. There have been some stories that explored the whole finger thing so thoroughly that the next Star Trek story I read where somebody touched Spock's hand, I felt like I had just, I, I was like, oh, 
Oh how my dare God. you? How dare you? How dare you, bastard? Stop touching him. <laughs> there is no touching. Oh, see? Sex is a spectator, a spectator sport. sport. I mean, we treat it like a spectator sport on terms of like some of our porn channels, but um, that's not quite what you mean. I don't know how I would feel about, you know, you're going to go sit down for your lunch break and the place where everybody lines up to have lunch is in front of the place where everybody's banging. And it's like, I give him 10, I give him 10 points for style. <laughs> His energy is pretty low. I mean, <laughs> it is a Western bias. True. But, if, to be fair, most people reading your fan fiction are going to have a Western bias, the vast majority. So, um, especially since Kira's blocked in China. Uh <laughs> I am. I am. But interestingly enough, um, I had a, I have a reader who's in Asia. I won't, I won't mention the country um, who uh, was very um, put off by the public nudity in, in the soulmate bond. Yeah, I could see that could be it for some some people that could be like, oh, what are you doing? I bet you they haven't even read Ties That Bind. No, I hope not. I told her not to. <laughs> uh, just not a good idea, baby. <laughs> if you think that was interesting. Although there was somebody who was put off by the public sex in um, Ties That Bind. And I was like, why'd you read it? It has exhibitionism right there in the warnings. <laughs> I meant that shit. I don't put warnings up there for no for no reason. <laughs> if I give you a warning, you can take it to the bank. <laughs> Sometimes you do a piece of world building that you do like just to kind of fill in the background to give a better, to give a wider scope of the society that your your people are living in. But then your readers get bent around the axle about it. Um, and I have two pieces of that where it's happened um, where readers just got really bent and wanted more information, wanted to know why it was a background piece, why it, because it, it's background. It's not, okay, so the first one was the um, uh, submissive slave law that conservative people were trying to get passed in Ties That Bind. It would have never passed, ever. Um, it was just there to represent a certain part of that society that it wasn't that the people that you were seeing on screen wasn't all there was, you know, that there mm -hmm. were other elements out there that were not as forward thinking, who were not as progressive, who were not as um, consent oriented. And Kevin Jordan also represented that. Um, in Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond, it's uh, Harry's little, little, uh, subversive game with star where he is bonding all these elf clans to his bloodline it's supposed to speak to the scope of magic and the scope of um how self rights around the world and how britain is different and what he plans to do is basically you know conduct a low-scale civil war um in britain when because they, they're not even paying attention they, these, these assholes have no idea what's coming and it's just this little thing and when it finally hits they can't do a damn thing about it there won't be any big thing because he's already he's already won that battle but they didn't even know that they were fighting before it happens and so it's just about securing um rights for elves in um in britain because of star because star's daughter was killed um by her master in britain um, and so it's just this little piece of world building that uh, would have come to 
would would have been resolved in season two if I ever wrote season two, which I don't actually intend to do now. Um, and he would have called a press conference. He would have announced his blood bonds with these particular uh, House of Clans, um, which would have been every single fucking House of Clan in Great Britain. And then he would have told them the ways in which they could keep his elves employed in their homes. And then he would have told them that, that he had the ability to end any single bond for any bonded elf in his house, which was every single elf in Britain. And if anybody had a problem with it, they could meet him on the dueling stage of their choice. <laughs> and that's how that would have gone down. He needs a dick or a bob for that. And maybe one person would have tried it. Right. And that would have been all that they wrote. But they probably wouldn't have because of the duel he'd already fought in front of Magical Britain. But so, it, and that was it. It, it. it would have probably been maybe 2,000 words of content. But readers got obsessed with it. And it was just this little piece of background world building I did to speak to the larger scope of the world that they were living in. Do, living in. Like the Witches Conference in Ireland. I think it felt significant to some people and some people didn't even pay attention to it because of the plight of house elves in the book in the books and how they're treated and some people got really invested in that particular element um especially with winky um and dobby and then dobby dying so it speaks more to people's emotional connection to the canon elf circumstances than it did to the circumstances of elves in my story that's just my personal opinion yeah. And sometimes the littlest thing you think you're just putting in to help flesh something out. Well, or even if it's, well, I guess that was just to flesh out. But the one that I was thinking of actually that had more, um, has more, it, it's actually foreshadowing for something to come in a sequel to a story is the world building I did around Sentinels and Guides and Vicious. Um, the, with the, with the, they get new skills that come from psionic energy when the first guides come back, you know, and the first guides, come back as you know basically baby animals which you know that was a lot of, i wanted cute baby baby animals in the story and there's this mention so i was like okay so they have these first guides that are actually very tangible and they don't ever disappear to the psionic plane to recharge um and these first guides are basically this kind of like a test right and i mentioned i'm like well, what happens if they fail the test so there's this mention of the first guide that was killed and that you know they pretty much they're pretty hardy and they're fine if anything happens to them but there was an instance where one was killed and um that they never saw that um that spirit that, that type of spirit animal occurring again um and um and people were wrapped around the axle around that it was one like two lines in the story that first guy that had been killed they got really bent about it super super invested in well what about but what about which it would be addressed in the second um third story i don't remember which um i was going to pick that thread up but i i didn't think it was such a big deal otherwise i'd have i don't know i might have done more with it but man i was it was a lot of people who were really deeply deeply invested in that dead spirit animal it was not really dead it's just not tangible anymore <laughs> it's a spirit guide they don't die <laughs> And they're not, and he's like a hundred percent done with all their shit. So right, he's, he's just coming back. He's <laughs> coming back. But yeah, the investment in that one line of that one or two lines in the story about that that spirit, the first guy that was killed, um, was 
epic. And so sometimes you don't know what people are going to react to in your world building that they're going to get really deeply invested in. Yeah, he went home and he's sitting there going, I'm not impressed with these people. I don't think I want to um, basically send my spirit children to be spirit guides for these yahoos. So. <laughs> <laughs> Estefy says, and I don't blame your readers one damn bit, girl. I left Rodney's cat to get eaten by zombies once, and I've never heard the end of it. And well, you shouldn't. How dare you? <laughs> Dishonor on your cow. <laughs> they went back for him eventually. <laughs> I was having a fuzzy moment when I was writing um, uh, Heart of a Lion. And I almost gave Meredith a stray kitten while she's in Hawaii. And I was like, for fuck's sake, they've already got two cats. They don't need another. No, they don't. <laughs> I think the lion and the jaguar is quite enough. This was I always think Rodney's, it's just, I sort of like feel like Rodney's cat now, always in my head, is really secretly a flirkin. <laughs> Someone asked me if Quark was a flirkin. I was like, I didn't even know what a flirkin was when I wrote Quark. So, of course not. He's just a cat. Have you never owned a cat? They're like that. They're weird. They'll open doors and shit. They'll talk to you. My sister's cat calls her mama. <laughs> there's this There's this gift that Kira uses quite frequently. And cats are just like this. If I can find this. It is. Yeah, that's it. My favorite is fuck these things in, fuck these things in particular. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So I hope that that um, answers the question and that you guys got something out of it. We're going to, we can end the podcast unless you have something else you want to talk about on the podcast. If that was directed at me, the answer is no. Okay. That was directed at you. <laughs> so we hope you guys learned something and that you're looking forward to our write in and our plot in on Saturday. And um, we will talk some more about it. Um, after we get finished with this recording and then we'll probably do up a schedule as well so um, say goodnight Jilly goodnight everyone <laughs> <laughs>